Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com. Welcome to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. One of the strongest storms in American history devastated much of the Florida Peninsula this week. Hurricane Ian came barreling ashore near Cayo Costa Wednesday as a punishing Category 4 hurricane. It made landfall with 150-mile-an-hour winds, just shy of being a Category 5 storm. That's right, Matt. Now, rescue operations continue today after unprecedented flooding from one of the most powerful hurricanes ever recorded in the United States. Kevin Guthrie, director of the Florida Division of Emergency Management, gave an update on fatalities from the storm. So where we stand right now on fatalities, we have one confirmed fatality in Polk County. We have 12 unconfirmed fatalities in Charlotte County. We have eight unconfirmed fatalities in Collier County. We have one confirmed fatality in um, in Polk County. So that brings us up to 21 total. Aside from these numbers, it's still not clear how many people are exactly missing. Thousands are stranded around the state, and some 2 million Floridians remain without power today in damage and economic losses that could amount to as much as $120 billion. Yeah, some huge numbers there, Melissa. Now, we're spending the full hour today here on the Florida Roundup assessing the impact of this monster storm. Let us know how you made it through the worst of Ian. Give us a call. We're at 305-995-1800. That's 305-995-1800. Or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Your calls and tweets in just a bit. But first, we're going to check in with public media reporters all across Florida to see how their corner of the state fared this week. We're going to begin the round robin with reporter Tara Calligan of WGCU in Fort Myers. Hi, Tara. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Good to have you. So you're coming to us from absolutely the hardest hit area of the state. How is the recovery and response effort going there today? Recovery and response is still ongoing, uh, specifically if we're looking at the Sanibel, Captiva, and Fort Myers Beach areas. They are, at this point on Sanibel and Captiva, we have the fire department, we have Florida Fish and Wildlife, and just everyday citizens. Any boat that they can find, they are going to the island home to home, individual to individual to evacuate them off of the island. I spoke with a firefighter with the Sanibel Fire and Rescue, and he was telling me that there is no way because of the Sanibel Causeway they can get vehicles on the island. So that's no police. That is no emergency vehicles. That is no medical service that can get there other than boat or uh, you know, helicopter plane. Um, so people are unable to access the services that they need. Uh, and a lot of people don't even know that the bridge is out because, again, there is very limited communication uh, on those islands. Right. We've seen the images of that destroyed Sanibel Causeway. Absolutely brutal uh, to see how the the wind and the water just took it apart like matchsticks. These devastating scenes from southwest Florida have been horrible to watch. We've heard uh, emergency response officials say most of the deaths from Ian did happen in Charlotte County. Uh, As you look past Sanibel, what are the most critical needs you're hearing from around the whole the whole region? The critical need that we're hearing from people is they have no power, they have no access, but also a lot of people are displaced with nowhere to go. Uh, Hotels are difficult to find, uh, places to stay are difficult to find, safe places to stay are difficult to find. So uh, speaking with residents who were just getting off certain islands or off Fort Myers Beach, and they're now in a safe location, but they have nowhere to be. If they don't have any loved ones, if they don't have somewhere to stay, all of the hotels are full. A lot of hotels don't even have power. They have nowhere to actually go. So that's going to be, I think, one of the larger issues that we're going to be facing is where are these, where's everyone going to go? 
Where will they go? Uh, are you seeing people on the streets walking around? Do you have any idea how many people are without shelter there or are in shelters? Uh, what shelters may be available? Unfortunately, this time I don't have exact number information about that. Uh, the areas I was really able to get into were Fort Myers, downtown Fort Myers, uh, Sanibel, and as close to Sanibel Captiva as I could. Um, that number, though, I, I do not have that at this time. It Honestly, I, Hard to I can't say. think of how many people. That I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it's a high number. And uh, the lack of power, uh, whole counties off the grid. Uh, what are officials telling yes. you about the biggest challenges there? So the biggest challenges are access at this point. Water has been a bit of a challenge. Uh, we are still seeing flooding in a lot of different areas across southwest Florida. Um, the debris, tree limbs, um, we've had manufactured home parks completely decimated. Uh, that is going to be the most difficult. Uh, I believe at this point we have uh, Cape Coral, we have uh, Marco Island, Pine Island, Sanibel, North Fort Myers. No customers in those areas have power whatsoever at this point, uh, as of updates that we received this morning from utility companies. Tara Calligan on the ground in the Fort Myers area reporting from WGCU, uh, the eye of the storm, really. Thank you, Tara. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Let's now go to Kerry Sheridan of WSF in Tampa. She joins me here in studio. Thanks for being here, Kerry. Thanks for having me. Now, you've been out and about in Sarasota in the last uh, 24 hours or so. What are you seeing there? Well, in Sarasota, there are a lot of trees that are down. Um, we have a lot of debris on the sides of the roads. Um, I saw some long lines at gas stations. People are getting gas for their vehicles and for you know refueling their generators. Um, we also have a school closure situation where the Sarasota County schools are going to be closed uh, Monday and really until further notice, we just learned today from the school district. Mm-hmm. What are the biggest needs you're seeing for residents? The biggest need really is power. As you heard from Tara just now, a lot of people don't have power. In Sarasota and Manatee counties, it's close to half of the electric companies. Uh, customers do not have any power. Um, so that that's a big concern. Um, but, you know, water is running in Sarasota, which is good. Um, we just heard from Scott Hopes in Manatee County. Um, he's asking people to hold off doing laundry because of water concerns there, however. Um, they are seeing rising water um, because of some of the rivers have yet to crest out east in Manatee County. So there's a lot of standing water there. That water is rising and um, they're trying to get power back, but a big problem with that is the infrastructure damage. He mentioned uh, a lot of transmission lines are down. And then there's the supply chain issues that we've all been hearing about for the past year or so. Um, some things like light poles have been mm -hmm. back ordered for a whole year. So those are all concerns right now. Well, let's um, get a call in here. Uh, Jamie is calling from Tampa. Uh, Jamie, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Hey, Matt. Hey, Melissa. How are you guys today? Good, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for having me. Thanks for taking my call. I gotta say, uh, I live in Temple Terrace, and by some miracle, we still have power. We still have light. Um, and I got and I want to thank you guys, Florida Public Radio Emergency Network, for keeping us informed. I mean, it's amazing. And Melissa and Matt, I think you guys know what I'm talking about when I say it. That in that in over a hundred year old technology, like called radio. We don't think about we don't think about it too much until you're the one sitting in the dark or you're the one without without electricity, and then that radio is not just a music listening toy anymore. Mm -hmm. It is a lifeline, and you guys were on top of everything. I didn't have to worry about it. I knew what station to go to, and not just for Tampa, but for the whole state. And you guys should be really proud of what you guys were able to do. You, Melissa, and you, Matt, and. Uh, what, what what the stations all did to keep us to keep us all, all updated, even through a hurricane. Right. And I know, and I imagine many were running off of generator power for, and, mm -hmm. and, and probably still are. But right. It's right. Amazing that it that an over one hundred year old piece of technology <laughs> is just as relevant today as, mm. as as it's ever been. And 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 yep. I can't thank you guys enough for what you did. 
Jamie, thanks uh, so much for your call and thanks for your, your kind words. Um, just a reminder too, you can send us a tweet. We're at Florida Roundup. Give us a call, 305-995-1800. Want to hear your experiences of Hurricane Ian. And uh, a reminder too, the Florida Storms app, uh, our caller Jamie was mentioning, you can find that um, anywhere you get your apps. A good way to keep up uh, with storm information through the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network. Uh, Kerry Sheridan, call there, very happy for the, the power of radio. Um, are you kind of hearing similar things? People able to sort of stay connected even though they're without power and, and uh, missing out on some other kind of critical things as they recover? Yeah, I, I I appreciate that caller. Of course, this is what we do, Matthew. We we provide information to the public, and especially in a storm situation, it becomes even more critical uh, that people be reminded of things like make sure that your generator is in a safe place, make sure it's not in your garage, make sure it's not got a cord running through water. Mm -hmm. Some of the things in the aftermath of storms, the emergency officials we heard from this morning at the governor's press conference just reminding people that many fatalities happen after a storm, too, that uh, we need to be safe and cautious. Traffic accidents are another issue when lights go out. Um, people don't know that they're supposed to act as if it's a four-way stop, for right. instance, when there's no light at the intersection. Mm -hmm. uh, Kerry, first responders in the Tampa Bay area are involved in that rescue and recovery effort further south, um, You know, sending boats, in some case, other kind of resources south. What can you tell us about that? Right. When I was coming home uh, from the station uh, the day after, which would have been, I guess, Thursday morning, mm -hmm. um, I saw a convoy of Pinellas County Sheriff's uh, trucks going southward, um, and they were all towing airboats or, or small boating craft with them. And uh, a source, uh, police source confirmed to me that they were going down to help with the rescue and the search and rescue effort, which mm -hmm. we've known even before the storm was going to be a huge issue because a lot of people in that area that was most affected, Lee County includes Cayacosta, Sanibel Island, Fort Myers, Bonita Springs, and Cape Coral. They didn't really know that it was going to hit them with full force until yeah. probably the last second. Kerry Sheridan reporting for us, uh, WUSF in Tampa and uh, reporting around Sarasota County and South. Thank you so much for your reporting and, and for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's head farther south now. Gwen Filosa is the incoming Florida Keys reporter for WLRN, joins us now. You know, Gwen, of course, Ian devastated Cuba before it headed up to Florida. What were the worst impacts as it's made it? made its way through the Keys in terms of flooding and wind? The Keys um, got uh, even more storm surge than they expected. Um, three to five feet uh, on the Keys as a, a storm surge um, from Ian, as Ian brushed past the Keys, well west of the Keys. And um, of course, nothing like what we're seeing um, uh, in other parts of Florida, but it's all relative. In, in Key West, more than 100 homes were took water and were flooded um, nearly four feet in the historic neighborhood of Bahama Village. And uh, many uh, of the people are low income residents who, who have lost uh, things. And meanwhile, Duval Street, totally fine, up and running. Bars were open at noon um, mm. uh, Thursday. But um, in other parts of the, of the city, it looks like nothing happened. But there are people in Newtown and in uh, down in Bahama Village who just really lost a lot. Now, there were reports that crocodiles were swimming in the flooded streets in Key Largo. Any uh, any truth to that? And uh, what's the flooding situation yes. like? Yes, uh, there are neighborhoods up there that just that always flood anyway in a hard rain. But you couldn't tell where the backyards and canals be begin up there. Um, the, the the storm surge from Ian it, it jumped onto the what we call king tides, which are these higher than average seasonal tides that that uh, can cause standing water. But um, almost three feet of uh, standing water was in uh, one Key Largo neighborhood called Stillright Point. And yes, there were uh, photos of alligator uh, of a crocodile uh, on a boat ramp on. Um, and uh, there were um, some reports of them being in the water, which, of course, it's myopic when you're when that flooding. Of course, you, you can't really see where you're going. Um, and yeah. uh, the people there are uh, waiting for things to recede.
Yeah, stay out of the water in the meantime. Gwen Filosa, covering the keys for WLRN. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, Ray Troncoso has been following the storm for WJCT News. And how's our look at North Florida? Ray, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matt. It's uh, looking pretty good. They're definitely breathing a sigh of relief up here. Mm -hmm. Just how bad was the storm in northeast Florida? Any evacuations to report? So there were some evacuations, but they definitely expected it to be a lot worse. We were very lucky that the storm took a very eastern trajectory kind of at the last second and kind of went off the coast instead of uh, coming through the Jacksonville area. There were evacuations that were ordered in St. John's County and Clay County. Um, we know in St. John's County, uh, as of this morning, they did tell people who evacuated not to come back yet until they could evaluate the damage more. Um, for people who may not be super familiar with the geography of the state, uh, St. John's County is kind of framed on its western edge by the St. John's River and then on the eastern end by the Atlantic Ocean. So there are definitely some concerns that there is going to be a lot of flooding. Mm -hmm. uh, what about St. Augustine? We did see some storm surge reports there, f you know, footage and photographs of that look pretty bad. I know that is a, a city that does tend to get hammered pretty hard when there's um, a storm that dumps a bunch of water on it like that and has strong winds. What's it like now? It is a lot better now, but again, uh, people who were told to evacuate before Ian had made landfall or before Ian had reached the region have been told not to return unless they've been uh, basically instructed to by local emergency officials who are basically going door to door and assessing the damage to each individual neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and what about the, the power situation? Obviously, power outages across the state still really high. A lot of people are without electricity, maybe for some time in, in northeast Florida, Jacksonville and beyond. What, what's it like? So there's actually quite a few people that are still without power. Uh, JEA, which is Jacksonville's municipal utility, um, at its peak had about 20,000 to 22,000 customers concurrently without power. Uh, in total, the number of people who lost power is around 150,000, um, and they've restored about 130,000 customers. Um, Clay Electric, which serves multiple counties in the surrounding areas, they still have around... 2,500 customers without power, but at mm -hmm. its peak, one in 10 customers did not have power throughout the uh, Northeast area. One thing that, you know, power companies were making people aware of as the storm was rolling through was, you know, once those winds got up pretty high, they weren't going to be able to get out and start kind of fixing the lines that were down, et cetera. And of course, just telling people to sit tight and, and wait while roads got cleared. Um, was there a lot of debris on the roads and, th and that sort of thing in northeast Florida that was, um, you know, stopping those those crews from getting out and about? Yeah, so when you compare it to Southeast Florida or South Florida, there's a lot more trees, there's a lot more foliage as you're in the northern part of the state. And so there's a lot of tree branches, there's a lot of trees falling over onto power lines. And like mm. you said, those linemen aren't going to be out during those high winds because it's very dangerous. They can get caught in the lines, lines can get snapped by trees while they're working out there. So linemen were working throughout the storm when they were able to. But again, it's it's a very dangerous job when those winds are high. Mm-hmm. We've been speaking with Ray Troncoso uh, following Hurricane Ian, the path of the storm through northeast Florida for WJCT News. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Ray. Thank you. Well, up next, we will be speaking with a former FEMA administrator explaining how the massive emergency response effort will work out here in Florida. Plus, we'll talk about why climate change is driving bigger and stronger hurricanes Love to hear your thoughts too. You can give us a call, 305-995-1800. Or send us a tweet at Florida Roundup. This is the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Back in a moment.
Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family-owned and operated since 1936, and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits. Always be celebrating. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And we're taking your calls and tweets right now about Hurricane Ian and its aftermath. Let us know how you're doing out there, Florida. 305-995-1800 or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Sylvia on the line in Miami. Hi, Sylvia. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I was fortunate that uh, I just had three days of uh, rain and two of wind. But uh, I was wondering if FEMA or other organizations uh, create websites to offer housing to people who don't have anywhere to go that are in a shelter? You know, that's such a great question. And as you're asking it, I'm Googling to try to get a response to you. Uh, There is a website up now that a coalition of grassroots organizations put together. It's ianresponse.org, ianresponse.org. And uh, if you go there, uh, I would start there and see how you can coordinate whatever you have to offer with all of the groups that are working in the state. In a few minutes, Matthew, too, we will check in with former FEMA administrator Craig Fugate as he talks about the emergency response. So keep listening for that, folks. Yeah, that's right. In a moment, we'll speak with Craig Fugate. Uh, First, though, uh, let's get a few more calls in. Uh, Steve is on the line from uh, Gainesville. Steve, what are you thinking? Uh, well, first off, here in Gainesville, we were lucky we didn't have too many issues. Um, I do want to comment, you know, especially in some of the major national news reports of this before the storm hit, they focused so much on Tampa, and they didn't have a lot of the nuance that the meteorologists had about the turn that the storm could take. Mm-hmm. And I think the media needs to get a little better at broadcasting this idea that the storm could really go in a lot of directions so that the people watching that in places like Fort Myers would know to expect this. Yeah, yeah that's a point that I've, I think a lot of um, people have made. I, I mean, the, my perspective from the uh, meteorological reports that I was seeing, the stuff that we were broadcasting, I think the turn was signaled fairly early and meteorologists were saying that, look, you've got to pay attention to what emergency managers are saying because, uh, you know, there's a tendency to focus on the track, but the impasse could be spread far and wide. And there was some uncertainty sort of uh, built into where that storm could have been going. Uh, Melissa, your perspective on that, what what do you think uh, is the takeaway from sort of how this has played out in terms of what we're hearing leading up to landfall? I, I think that if you live in Florida... You need to take these storms seriously. I think that for many folks, they look at the path of the storm and they think, well, it's I'm a little bit outside the evacuation zone, so I should be fine. And then often, you know, you'll speak with people after a storm and they'll say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll never blow off a hurricane again. I'll take it seriously the next time. So I guess my only takeaway is, take these storms seriously and be mindful of the fact that they can shift track uh, and they can do it relatively rapidly. So let's get a few more of you into the conversation. Larry in Plant City has been holding. Hi, Larry. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. So what are things like where you are? Yeah, go ahead. Well, well, We've been without power uh, in the neighborhood I live in, in Plant City, since about 3 p.m. on Wednesday. Mm. And we're at a point now where we're still without power, but just two blocks to my east, they have power. Now, I had to go out this morning on an emergency run for some neighbors, and I went by the Tico yard that's in Plant City, and as I went by, there were 22 bucket trucks sitting there idle. Yet while I was out, I saw several bucket trucks from other power companies throughout the southeast out on the road going somewhere. 
but nothing is happening on our side of Highway 39 in Plant City at all on the on the west side. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, I I can only imagine how frustrated you are, and I, I'm, you know, this is the story, Larry, for literally millions of Florida residents right now are sitting in the dark. Millions of people at the at the height of this, twenty five percent of all Florida residents were without power. Listen, Larry, I'm really sorry, and all I can tell you is keep uh, contacting the power company, and I, I really hope they get to you soon. And I, I feel for you. I know how frustrating that is. I've been there. Thanks for calling, Larry. Um, we're going to uh, speak with Alex Harris, environment and climate change reporter for the Miami Herald. But uh, first, let's go to Craig Fugate, former FEMA administrator, director, and former director of the Florida Division of Emergency Management. Craig, thanks for being here. Craig, are you there? We'll check in with Craig when he uh, gets on the line. First, let's go to uh, Alex Harris. Alex, uh, are you with us? Are you are you here? My apologies. Yeah, I'm here. No problem. Uh, so, Craig, you've talked many times about why evacuation orders are issued to stop people from drowning. Uh, we're sort of still piecing together the aftermath of this and the response. Is Hurricane Ian your worst case scenario? Yeah, for Southwest Florida, again, this is I think why you know experience of Florida is sometimes always focused on the wind of hurricanes, and you know we got Hurricane Andrew, Hurricane Charlie, those kind of storms. But this was probably the largest area of storm surge damage that we've seen in, in recent history. Um, you know, we had this in Hurricane Ivan, been up in you know the Pensacola area, but this is a much higher populated area. Uh, the storm surge was over a larger area. And, and again, you're seeing from the images, people look at that and go, that was wind. I'm like, no, that was water. That's how mm. powerful storm surge is. Right. Yeah, I mean, the devastation to the causeways there, massive chunks of concrete seemingly just picked up and thrown around like toys. It's it's pretty staggering to see. Yeah, now it's, the, you know, the, the, the big focus right now is on search and rescue, uh, mm-hmm. getting into these areas. Uh, the next thing that's going to be big is where are people going to stay? And so that's, it's important that, you know, the governor has requested the president to declare a disaster. Uh, the president has declared a disaster. And the big thing is, providing individual assistance to families and head of households. Um, and th- this is going to be a huge challenge is, you know, getting people somewhere safe to stay. What about uh, just the way that recovery is going from your perspective? Uh, did they have enough resources in place ahead of time, sort of pre-staged to get things up and running? Well, the, the stuff that was pre-staged was really search and rescue and power. But uh, you know, this is the thing I got, you know, you got to make sure people understand the power system and water systems were destroyed. So this isn't a repair job. This will be a rebuilding job. So for some of these areas, it's going to be a slow process to get that back up because they're going to have to rebuild it. In some cases, as you saw, the roads going out, the barrier islands are wiped out. Uh, those are going to have to be rebuilt. So I think recovery will take place in other parts of the state much faster until you mm-hmm. get down to the areas of heavy devastation, and that's going to be harder. And so Everything's really been focused on this getting the search and rescue, getting the immediate response in there, and then looking at what is going to be able to come back quickly and what's going to take longer, and then making decisions about how that's going to steer the recovery. This is a, an event that will take many years, presumably, to, to build back from, right? And we've seen that in previous storms. What's your sense of uh, how the Fort Myers area is going to look after this? It will be different. But it will come back. Um, but it should look different because we want to build back in a way that mitigates future storms. We don't want to build it back the way it was, where it was. We want to improve it so that, you know, these storms are going to happen. Um, they're going to do damages. But if we do the right thing, we can build in a way that it minimizes uh, those catastrophic impacts. And, again, this is the lesson we learned from Hurricane Andrew the building code. You know, we saw this if you go up into the panhandle of Hurricane Michael where Mexico Beach was destroyed in storm surge that has been rebuilt, but rebuilt mm. differently. There'll be gentrification. Uh, we're going to have to balance the public policy of rebuilding back in these areas, but also how we maintain affordable housing 
uh, because you know rental prices in Florida have already been outrageous. You know, housing right. prices are very high, and so that's the balance. But the key thing here, particularly for the infrastructure, is just don't put it back the way it was. Build it back better so the next storm, yeah, will cause damages, but it won't be so catastrophic. Craig, just finally, what's your message to folks who are awaiting recovery, you know, whatever the situation may be, what, what do you say to them? You know, there is, there's nothing I can say to make anybody feel better. And this is a very difficult, very hard thing. All I can tell people is take it one day at a time. Uh, people are still looking for lost ones. There are people who have lost their lives. Families will be grieving. And I tell people this is not a quick, you know, thing to get through. Take it one day at a time. Take care of yourself. Take care of your loved ones. Um, but take it one day at a time. If you try to think where I'm going to be in two weeks, it, it just, it's just so difficult. Just one day at a time. Keep breathing. Keep living. And we'll recover. Craig Fugate, former FEMA Administrator and Director of the Florida Division of Emergency Management, now a consultant on emergency management. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's go to Mark in Sarasota. Hi, Mark. What's your situation? Hello. Um, well, I've been without power now for almost 51 hours. Mm. Fortunately, I know people who have uh, electricity, so I've been able to empty my fridge and freezer and save all the you know expensive restocking that. Um, other than that, it's not really been much of a problem. There's you know there's tree limbs down. There's branches all over the place. Other fences down. There's still traffic lights out. Uh, I'm on the north side of the city of Sarasota, which not everybody knows. The city is all around the north end of the county, so I'm just a few miles south of Manatee County. Uh, But, you know, water is going. Got plenty of sunshine, so I can sit on the driveway and read all day. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, I mean, I kind of get annoyed. I've been out helping friends take down their shutters and clean up some of their messes because I really don't have much that I have to do at my place, fortunately. Well, that's but, good, um, at least. So it actually had me out contributing to the traffic, but I'm amazed how much traffic there actually is out here. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm... Stoplights that aren't working. And I'm so sorry you're still without power. I hope you have it restored yeah. soon. Um, and, you know, it's... A, it, it's like all... an adult version of camping is all it really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's about right. And uh, I'm glad you can still listen to the radio, Mark, uh, and I appreciate the call. Uh, The Florida Public Radio Emergency Network is always on, by the way, folks, in the middle of even the most intense storms. When everything else goes out, you can always still listen to the radio to get that vital information. And this is the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Scott tweets the show, talk about climate change. Please include a discussion of climate change mitigation, not just recovery. There is a reason for the increasing size and intensity of these storms, he tweets. Well, that's why we're pleased to now welcome Alex Harris, environment and climate change reporter for the Miami Herald. Hi, Alex. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me this morning. Good to have you. Six storms of Category 4 or 5 strength have hit the Gulf Coast of the U.S. in the last five years. As we look at Ian and all of the storms we've been through in the last decade in this state, I want to get your sense of how warmer ocean waters are adding to the size and uh, strength and the rainfall percentage of these storms. Yeah, so uh, the science of exactly how climate change affects hurricanes is actually really tricky. I've talked to scientists about this for years. And there are some things they're pretty sure about and some things that are still an open question. Uh, One of the things that they're the most sure about is that as the water in the ocean gets warmer and as the air in the atmosphere gets warmer, it means that there's physically more moisture in the air. So these storms can produce more rain, more extreme rain. So more rain overall, more that falls. And more as sea levels are rising, it also is creating physically more water in the ocean to be pushed ashore for storm surge. Mm -hmm. So two of the biggest impacts we saw of Hurricane Ian are things that have a direct link to uh, climate change over the last few years. It's impossible to link one specific storm to say climate change caused it. But we can feel confident from scientists who told us that there are things that climate change has worsened and will continue to worsen in the world about hurricanes. 
Now, aside from uh, the storm surge we saw during Ian, flooding has been the big story of this hurricane, along with wind damage. South Florida in particular has been trying to figure out how to deal with flooding for a while now. How do you see communities in Florida ramping up their adaptation and their mitigation efforts? Because we know that we can expect more of this. Well, so first, I think that's a great question. I think it's important to talk about the difference, like your uh, audience member mentioned, the difference between adapting to hurricanes and climate change and mitigating them. So what we see a lot of in Florida um, is adaptation. We're seeing building codes saying that build higher. We're seeing roads elevated, storm pumps that can move water out, uh, canals that are deeper and can carry more water away. And that's great. That's something that um, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, has put a billion dollars of federal money toward for the last couple of years of helping local communities up and down the coast adapt to climate change. He doesn't call it climate change, it's resilience, but it is adapting to future stronger storms. But the other side of the coin is mitigation. And mitigation is making sure that the atmosphere doesn't get too much hotter than it already does. And that means getting off fossil fuels as fast as we can. It means getting people to use public transit and electric cars instead of gas powered vehicles. And it's uh, changing the way we build and being more energy efficient. And that is not happening in Florida at nearly the pace it should be and nearly the pace it's happening in plenty of other states around the nation. Yeah, not to mention how difficult it is to scale up solar here in the Sunshine State more aggressively. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's partially because uh, the utilities are sort of standing in the way of that. We've seen it against the business interests of Florida Power and Light and Duke to even begin to, uh, you know, encourage the development of rooftop solar or distributed solar and battery. And even at the utility scale, battery for solar is pretty expensive. And we're not seeing as much of it in Florida as you would expect for someplace called the Sunshine State. Would it be fair, Alex, to call people who've had to leave their homes for other parts of Florida or leave the state altogether because of hurricanes and and climate impacts, would it be fair to call them climate refugees at this point? I mean, I think that's a tough question. I've heard scientists say, you know, there's no such thing as a natural disaster anymore. All of these are man-made. And I think you saw a lot of the their climate migrants narrative coming Uh, A few years ago, after Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico, and we had a lot of folks move to places like Kissimmee, um, which, of course, just got struck with some terrible flooding as Ian went through. Um, And and I've seen that conversation kind of carried, and I really feel like you could make that argument, but I feel like what really we're going to see climate migration is when sea level rise uh, permanently. When that permanently, yeah. Well, we'll have to thank you there. Alex Harris, Miami Herald, thank you so much for being with us. And still to come, can Florida's insurance market withstand Ian's impact? We'll look at that next here on the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com. 
Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for being with us. Hope you made it through the storm all right. That's what we're talking about this hour. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, once the storm passes, can Florida handle all the insurance claims that will be filed from the destruction of Hurricane Ian? The state's property insurance market is fragile. A dozen companies, insurance companies operating in Florida have gone out of business since January 2020. Six were deemed insolvent this year. Nearly 30 more are on the state regulator's watch list due to financial instability. So in May, a new property insurance reform law took effect to deal with all this, trying to provide some relief to Florida homeowners. The law poured $2 billion into a reinsurance relief program and $150 million into a grant program for hurricane retrofitting, along with other reforms. But those changes won't help people who need assistance right now in the aftermath of the storm. Mark Friedlander is a director at the Insurance Information Institute and joins us now. Hi, Mark. Good afternoon, Melissa. Thanks so much for having me on today. Good to be with you. 305-995-1800 to join us. So how much stress is Ian going to cause to Florida's property insurance market, which isn't in the best shape to begin with? Well, clearly it's going to add more financial stress to an already reeling insurance market. However, the important point is Florida insurers are prepared to handle the high volume of claims from Hurricane Ian. You know, typically insurers are called financial first responders. They are there when their customers need them. And there are teams of claim adjusters on the ground in all the hard hit areas of Florida already helping their customers begin the first step towards recovery. So that's the important point. Once again, despite all this turmoil we've been talking about all year in the market, the insurers have reinsurance coverage and they are prepared to handle the volume of claims. Now, does that mean every company that is struggling is going to survive? Not necessarily. We're not making a prediction if they will or if they won't, but potentially some of the smaller struggling insurers could fail as well. But the good news is there are backstops in Florida. So when you have an insurance policy, you file a claim for a hurricane, you will get your claim paid regardless if your company stays in business or fails at some point after you file your claim. We have the Florida Insurance Guarantee Association, which pays claims for insolvent insurers. And we've had to tap that several times this year, as you know, with six companies that have been liquidated. And then we have the Florida Hurricane Catastrophe Fund. Say your insurance company just runs low on reserves because there's such a high loss level of claims from Ian. The Hurricane Catastrophe Fund will help pay those claims. So your claim will be paid. So as a consumer, as a homeowner, you have financial protection. That's good news. But let me ask you as well, uh, the legislature passed a law to reform the state's property insurance market. It isn't on the best financial footing. And I know you've indicated before some of the changes will take some time to take effect. What about people who are really hurting and need relief right now? Okay, are you referring to consumers or referring to insurance companies? I'm sorry, I was a little confused. Yeah, for, for, people that are, for people that are struggling to uh, get uh, paid or who have suffered a huge loss from this storm, uh, some of the reforms uh, that lawmakers have passed to make the system work better for everyone will take a while to take effect. They, they won't take effect overnight. What about uh, the right. people that are having trouble right now? Well, once again, getting back to what I, what I said a couple of minutes ago, the insurance industry is ready and able to pay all claims from Hurricane Ian. Uh, nothing to do with what the legislature did in May. That's There's no direct impacts on consumers right now. Maybe down the road, there'll be some relief in terms of their premium costs, et cetera. But in terms of a loss from Hurricane Ian, when you file a claim, you will receive that financial protection that you signed up for when you bought an insurance policy and you paid your premium. You are paid out regardless of what is happening in the market. 
That has nothing to do with you getting your claim paid from Hurricane Ian. What if you're someone who's just been dropped, say, uh, because you were told by your carrier, well, your roof is over 10 years old. We can't insure you anymore. That's been a common uh, occurrence for a lot of homeowners. That leaves them to find another company or go into the insurer of last resort, the Citizens Property Insurance Company. Uh, Are you concerned at all about the, the effect of the stress of Ian on citizens and how that will be borne out? Well, yes, citizens is in a very precarious position when it comes to risk. They are a very strong company financially, very strong capital base, but they have the highest risk of any insurer in the state right now. In fact, they have about 10% of the market share. And in terms of percentages, they are 53% larger than any private insurer. So they have a lot of risk exposure. And the way Citizens is set up is if they were to deplete their reserves of funds to pay claims, then every Florida consumer could potentially be on the hook to replenish those funds by surcharges being applied to every insurance bill in the state, not only for homeowners, but renters, condo owners, even drivers. Auto insurance policies would see a surcharge to help replenish the funds of citizens. But our understanding is citizens feels they have very adequate reserves to pay for the losses that we expect to see from Hurricane Ian. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. And we're taking your calls and your tweets. You can reach us at 305-995-1800. Send us a tweet at Florida Roundup. Let's go to Francis. Uh, Francis is calling us from, I think, the uh, east coast of Florida. Are you on the line? Hi, yes. I'm calling from Fort Pierce on the Treasure Coast. We did uh, much better than (laughs) most people. Yeah. Um, But... Um, my family came here in 28 in Miami. Um, they even experienced the 28 storm. Uh, oh, well. They were unnamed then. But um, So I grew up knowing to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. But I had a friend staying with me who's from Massachusetts, and uh-huh. she she basically mocked me for making such strong preparations, even though we were on the East Coast. But right. we remember very well Gene turning in the late 90s unexpectedly. Um, these things happen, but there are a lot of people who just don't take it seriously and assume, yeah. oh, the hurricane's not going to come here. Yeah, Francis, that's a good point. That's something we've heard from other callers and, and listeners have been tweeting us as well. Uh, Melissa, if you live in Florida, as you said earlier in the show, yeah. you've got to be prepared. Take, you it take it seriously. Here's an email from Tom. National flood insurance is taxpayer subsidized. That means the taxpayers are helping homeowners pay for their decision to buy or build in a dangerous location. Why do we allow this subsidy for the wealthy? So, Mark Friedlander, what about that? It, it's not really subsidized. That's not accurate. The, In fact, the National Flood Insurance Program has revamped. It's a whole new rating system. And now they rate properties very similar to how private insurers rate properties based on risk. And if you live in an extremely high risk area, you are paying a high premium for your flood coverage. So nobody is subsidizing that. In the past, the model was very bad for the National Flood Insurance Program, and they had to be bailed out numerous times by Congress. Yes, those are taxpayer dollars, but the new system is Mm -hmm. supposed to rate risk accurately based on actuarial data. And now you as a homeowner are paying the appropriate level of premium for that risk. And I know you've talked about this before. Will storms like this force any kind of reckoning with building along the coast? You've indicated in the past, as of yet, the answer is no. We're seeing not only in Florida, Melissa, but across coastal states, all the way up the east coast of Maine and across the Gulf states as well. People want to live by the beach or near the coast. There is a high demand to live near the coast. And in Florida, the good news is, 
building standards are very strong here. We have the strongest building codes in the country, according to the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. And it, you're taking a risk. Clearly, you're taking a risk. But people want to live near the shorelines. It's in any state that borders the Atlantic or the Gulf of Mexico. And it's high risk. And it, it's becoming more difficult to get any type of insurance coverage, whether it's your standard homeowner's policy or a flood policy, and you're going to pay for that. You're going to pay a lot more for that. And in Florida, many home insurers won't write those policies won't write them of anymore. the level of risk. Yeah. Right? And uh, always good to get your insights. Uh, and I'm sure this will be the story with even more intensity the next time we come to you. But I want to thank you, Mark Friedlander, Director at the Insurance Information Institute. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it, Melissa. And thanks to everyone who called and tweeted the show after this extraordinary week in Florida. This is the Florida Roundup produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Tway are show producers. WLRN's Director of Radio Operations and our Technical Director is Peter Mertz. Matthew? Engineering help uh, from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Isabella Da Silva. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. Have a great weekend, folks. Thanks for being with us. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com.